Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. My friend, Lee Ann Machoski Pomeranke is pastor of a Lutheran church in Minneapolis. And she looks exactly like you would expect a Lutheran pastor in Minneapolis to look like. The people who first called her to that church look exactly like what you would expect of Lutherans in Minnesota. They are easygoing, and they are pale, and they are Central and Eastern European in descent all the way back. But in the last few years, the neighborhood around the church has changed. And so now on Sundays, what used to be some empty seats in the congregation are filled with a number of congregants, a number of new worshipers, most of whom are immigrants from the nation of Liberia. And that means that their worship is a little bit different than it used to be. They say the same prayers that they've always said. They sing the same hymns they've always said, though she says they take a little bit longer and they repeat a few of the pieces a couple more times to make sure they really get it. She said mostly worship is the same, but there is one place that has changed dramatically Leanne says that the offering is now the most joyful, praise-filled moment of the entire worship service. Because, you see, you cannot get a Liberian usher to simply walk plates back up the aisle. A Liberian usher is always going to dance. Every week, she says, the ushers come shuffling and stepping down between the the people. They hold the plates way up high where everyone can see it and it has become the highest moment of praise in all the worship because every Sunday is a revelation as people who came to this country with nothing discover and are delighted to announce that they have something to give. We know instinctively that generosity is powerful. It is appealing and it is attractive in a person. I have known very few people in my life who didn't want to be generous. I've known some folks who wanted to be rich before they were generous, but they hoped one day to get to generosity. I never heard anyone say above the age of about seven, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge is kind of my role model. This month is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. When I go to checkout counters or wander uh, through my my weekly errands it seems in every line there's the opportunity to give and I hear the people in line with me being given the opportunity to give to to this charity or another and every time that the the opportunity is given I hear the people in front of me respond and I've never yet heard anyone say you know I just don't care about cancer I don't want to give now my experience is that most people when the given the chance to be generous They really, really want to take it. My experience is that most of us respond, I would love to help. And then we trail off. I'd love to help, but I don't have enough to spare. I'd love to help, but I'm not sure you'll use my money well. I'd love to help, but I'm not sure that my generosity makes a difference. 
Generosity is powerful, but it also seems a little uncertain to us. When we give, we aren't sure what good it will do, but we know exactly what we can expect from our possessions. They are reliable and dependable and predictable, and so we trust them. Our possessions, especially our money, they are powerful too. They are so powerful, in fact, that they can possess us. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was making us believe that being possessed would always look like the exorcist. The ancient Hebrews and Jews knew better than that. Because in the ancient Jewish understanding of things, the world was full of powers, and those powers were always at work on and in every person. That's why we read from the King James translation today. That's not my typical practice. But most translations these days say, a person cannot serve both God and wealth. But the King James that we read today leaves a funny word in there. Some printings of it will even leave it with a capital letter at the front of that word. In the King James translation, the choice is not between serving God and wealth or God and money. It is the choice between serving God and... Uh, you're not confident, but you know you know it. Mammon. Mammon is not an English word. So when you read it, you may be thinking, why don't the translators just do their job? Put it into terms we can understand. The King James leaves it there saying you cannot serve both God and mammon because Jesus was talking like an ancient Jew. He was personifying money as a power with a proper name. Mammon is a spiritual force, an authority at work in the world. Today, when you hear people talking about the market, as if it is this invisible force that seems to determine so much about our lives, you get the same feeling. We might even say that the market possesses our culture. And the desire to consume things for ourselves, the desires that drive the market, they can possess us just as easily. And the thing is, you don't even have to have wealth to be possessed by it. When my daydreams become full of the thoughts of what I could have, if only I had just a little bit more money, how my life would be just that much better if I could do just this bit more. That's what the old folks used to call the money power. That's mammon staking a claim in my life. And when mammon begins to take hold, we find that it is not a very friendly dance partner. And it never lets us lead the steps. But grace is God's power, freely given to make us into God's own image. And God's power has overcome the powers of this world. And we, we who are Methodists, we, mean, we know that we are always on the lookout of grace. And we're on the lookout for any habit or practice or method that will let grace grow in our lives. And that's why, from the very beginning, we've made a habit of generosity. Probably the best known of our methods is the one that we call the tithe. That's another one of those words that we just don't bother translating for some reason. All it really means is a tenth. It's the ancient English word, and it can be a tenth of anything. When we talk about a tithe, we're talking about a tenth of your income given to God. Now, I want to be real fair. I want to be real clear. Uh, the first Christians did not usually give a tenth of their money to the church. They typically gave much more. Acts chapter 2 tells us, All who believed were together, had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Because remember, our goal as Christians is never simply to say, I've done my part. 
as if we earned our place or justified it. Our goal is to grow in the image of God and, working, and let God's generosity work in us. But working toward a tithe is a great place to start. It's a practice that's much older than the church. It goes all the way back to Abraham in the book of Genesis. And later when Abraham's descendants became the nation of Israel, God commanded the Israelites to give a tithe, the first 10% of their crops and herds to the temple or synagogue. And that 10% came out before taxes or before debts, before personal spending. Tithe came off the top. And it was easy to figure out since the Israelites were mostly agrarian people. They come harvest time, they go picking, and the first year of corn went into the bucket for the temple or the synagogue, and then another nine, and then one for the temple or the synagogue. Kept going that way till they were done harvesting the field. Nowadays, even farmers don't earn their living quite like that. So whenever I talk about generosity, when I talk about tithing, people often ask me, should I pay on my gross or my net? You're not tithing now. Just start where you can. <laughs> Tithe on the, the check would be great. You know, it's hard enough without adding math into the equation. Just move that decimal point over. Make it easy on yourself. Tithing is enough of a new challenge without adding more math from the start. And once you've learned the joy of giving that, then make a regular habit of just examining your own life, your own heart, your relationship with God, and asking where God may be calling you to give in addition. I hope you keep asking that question, like all these discipleship questions, all the rest of your life. What is the next step for me, God? And if you do keep asking that question your whole life, it will change your life. It will shape your life. I've only been here for four months, and I can testify to the powerful grace of a generous life. I can remember Jenny Stallworth asking Buddy about their tithe on her deathbed. So ingrained in her was her commitment to the church. I don't know how it is exactly that giving our money away breaks the power that mammon has over us. I just know that I have seen it happen so often that it no longer surprises me. As far as I know, Dave Ramsey, the financial guru some of y'all probably heard of, as far as I know, he's not a Methodist, but he should be. Because he understands the power of habits and of graceful habits. And he says, the first line on your budget worksheet every month should be, what you're going to give away to something bigger than yourself. No matter how much you owe or how little you make, you begin by giving something to something bigger than yourself because giving puts everything else in perspective. It says to the powers of this world, your power in our relationship only comes this far. And the practice of giving is a practical power, a practical, practical form of grace. It is a habit that makes room for the power of God. Even if I hadn't seen such power in so many folks from this church already, I would still testify to the grace of giving. I remember back in 2009 when I moved to the little country churches that I served in Brantley. Jennifer and I had just finished our first and only nine months of marriage in which we had ever been dinks. You know what dinks are? Double income, no kids. We had nine months of that in our life. It was good. But we moved to Brantley, and by the start of 2013, we hadn't been dinks for a long time. By the start of 2013, we were sick. Single income, couple kids. 
And although we had always watched our money very carefully, even though we had always budgeted for a tithe, our giving wasn't what we meant it to be. One of the biggest challenges just came in, that our, in our giving was just that we don't ever carry a checkbook. You might have noticed churches tend to be a little slower to accept the payments everyone else does. And so there'd be a month when we would miss a gift that we intended to give, and then an unexpected expense would come up, and we might never go back and make good on the check that we missed. And at the end of 2012, we looked back and realized that we had not given quite as much as we meant to, and so we made a decision that year. We called our bank and set up an automatic monthly payment for our tithe, another for our offering to that church's building campaign, another to support a college ministry that was dear to our hearts. We decided that we were done with trying to remember to give, and we were just going to give right off the top, no matter what. We let the bank write the checks and mail them for us. And if we'd known in the beginning of 2013 what that year would hold for us, we might never have done that. By February that year, Jennifer was on her third ER visit and her first extended hospitalization for Crohn's disease. By July 3rd, she had major abdominal surgery. On July 19th, we found ourselves opening our home to a teenager who needed a family. And by November, we knew that this remarkable girl, Lakin, would be ours for the long haul and that we'd soon be parenting a college student. And it was somewhere in August when the medical bills were stacked on my desk that I knew I didn't know how we were going to make it all square. And every month along the way, the tithe was the first debit in our ledger. And there was no moment of transformation. There was no single miracle that made us stop worrying forever. I didn't get a miraculous raise or a visit from the tithing reimbursement fairy. All I know is that on December 31st, when it rolled around, I realized we were finishing that year in the best financial shape we had ever known. Please hear me. I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher. I don't think God has called us to be generous so that we can get richer. I don't think that God has called us to be richer so that we can be generous. I think God has called us to be generous, full stop. And for my family, growing in our generosity has never meant that we get to a point where we don't think at all about money. I think a big part of our story is purely practical. When our giving became automatic, we had to pay closer attention to all our other expenses. And somehow we gained control over them, at least a little bit. And that's the nice thing about being Methodist, is that I believe grace often acts in very practical ways. I believe it is the most practical mystery in the world. It is the power that says, come what may, I bear the image of a prodigal, extravagant, absolutely, abundantly generous God. And grace is the spirit that says, don't dance because dancing brings a good return on investment. Grace says dance because you can. Dance down every inch of that aisle just because you can. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.